Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. So what's gone wrong with America? Uh, this has been a theme that has dominated many of our shows in 2020, from Anne Applebaum to George Packer to many other contemporary critics and historians of America. There seems to be something that's gone deeply, terribly wrong with this country, not just in the, the COVID crisis, which has brought the crisis to the boil, but generally in this country, particularly in terms of inequality and political strife. Uh, one man who has given a lot of thought to what's gone wrong with America, both in 2020 and historically, is Jim Tankersley. Jim is uh, an award-winning New York Times journalist, and the author of uh, a very troubling and yet also hopeful new book, The Riches of This Land, which is the story both of what he calls the greatest middle class in history, uh, both of its rise and its fall. Uh, Jim, is there something Trumpy, Trumpian, and, and of course uh, you're not a big supporter, or a big admirer of Donald Trump, but is there something Trumpian about your assumption at the beginning of your book that the American middle class is the greatest in history? Uh, sure, you, you could call it Trumpian uh, if you like, but I actually think it's, um, it's empirically true, which is a, a, a different way of, of saying it. I think that um, the great American middle class of the post-war era was the time when we have seen capitalism, I think, work best and fastest to bring the most number of people into what we would consider a comfortable, secure middle-class life, uh, a car in the driveway, a home that you own, a retirement security, education for your children, the prospect of a better life for them than the one that you had. I think that is the dream that America has held out for itself for a long time. And there was a period in the post-war era when it was actually true for an enormous amount of people. And, uh, and that's what I'm talking about in the book, how that came to be and, and why it went away. You, uh, you suggest in the book that this happened between the 1940s and about 1970. How intimately bound up in terms of at least of its beginnings was it connected with the war, with the Second World War and America's involvement in that war? Well, I think that we can't uh, extrapolate it. Of, uh, we, can't, we can't disentangle from the war uh, because the war created an opening for America. America, but to, to, to go back just a little bit, until World War II, almost all of the most lucrative, highest skilled, highest paying jobs in America were restricted entirely to white men. And then a, a lot of white men went off to fight in the war and women uh, and black men and, and other uh, non-white uh, male Americans were brought into the workforce to do the jobs left, that were left needing to be done and in factories and, and elsewhere. And that was the start. That was the foot in the door of a social movement that would bring the progress for those workers that, that ended up lifting up the entire economy. 
And that, of course, uh, underlines the title of your book, The Riches of This Land. You're not writing about oil or mountains. You're writing about the population. You're suggesting that in the 1940s, um, the real riches of this land of America were unleashed. Uh, not just white men, but uh, women and uh, black people generally. Um, is that fair? Yes, absolutely. I think um, I think the riches of this land are our people, and I, and I don't certainly don't think that's uniquely American. I believe that that people are the strength of any country, but in, in particular, the riches of the American middle class came from unleashing the talents of Americans that have been bottled up for, for way too long. The very short version of it is that um, at, starting with necessity from the war and then building through social movements, um, black men and, uh, and women of all races and immigrants and, and, and Americans who were not white men um, fought for, uh, you know, a progression of rights that gave them access to do you know, jobs that they were better suited for. Like they were women who should have been doctors long before 1960, but weren't allowed to be. And then suddenly they started to get entry into those fields. And what that did was make the economy work more efficiently, more innovatively, made created better jobs, faster economic growth, and the sort of income gains that pulled people into the middle class. So yeah, I think that the riches are the people who sprouted all of those spectacular gains for the country over uh, that time. That sprouting, you suggest, is dramatic, and uh, as you argued at the beginning of this conversation, can be supported empirically to uh, underline the fact that this is the greatest middle class in history. Uh, Jim, support that statement. Give me some numbers, some, 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 some hardcore numbers about why this was such, and I use this word carefully, such a miracle in socioeconomic terms between 1940 and 1970. Yeah, no, I, I think, um, you know, when you're an economics reporter, you spend a lot of time uh, reading very dry economics papers. Right. And, uh, every once in a while, one hits you like a lightning bolt. And I was reading uh, this paper almost a decade ago now um, from uh, four economists to at Stanford to at University of Chicago. It's called The Allocation of Talent and U.S. Economic Growth. Dry title. But it, it, what it concludes in, in the version that has recently been published by a top economics journal is that 40% of America's per capita worker, uh, per, sorry, per capita income growth um, since 1960 is due to the more efficient allocation of talent, which is an economist's way of saying letting people actually do things they had been oppressed from doing uh, before. And 40% is a lot. It's, it's the difference between a red hot economy with a low unemployment rate like we had for so much of that post-war era and the economies we've seen for so much of the last 20, 40 years, which with the exception of the late 1990s have largely been characterized by slower growth and, and higher unemployment, which has just not produced gains that lifted all workers. So that is um, the backbone of the, of the book's argument is that paper, but there are a bunch of supporting evidence about female labor force participation, about the degree to which skills have changed in, in the workforce over time. And now women represent by far the most uh, skilled and educated portion of the American workforce. And there's a lot of evidence out there, that not just that this is what happened after the war, but that this is where our potential still lies today for a revival. So, Jim, if we were talking in 1970, this would be a Hollywood narrative uh, and it would end happily. 
Of course, it hasn't ended happily. What happened around 1970? What's changed everything in America? Well, it's hard to put a, a, like a specific end date on it, but I think the, the easiest way to think of it is that um, the Civil Rights Act was a revolutionary piece of economic legislation in the United States. We don't usually think of it that way. We think of it correctly as a social justice uh, measure, but it really did uh, deliver all these great economic benefits. But um, the white men who run the country uh, fairly quickly after it was passed started setting to work, uh, reversing it, undermining it, um, rolling back some of the progress. They got um, anxious to return things to the way that they were. And, you know, we see that with the opposition, for example, in the Reagan administration to affirmative action programs. Uh, then other things happen, like the war on drugs, which becomes a huge impediment to black male uh, labor force participation because of mass incarceration. Um, and then the economy shifts out from under everyone uh, over time. Uh, so it's automated, it's the computer revolution, there's the outsourcing revolution, the China shock, and all of that adds up to um, an economy where suddenly it's harder to get ahead if you are a worker without a college degree. It's harder to get ahead if you're a woman who is juggling childcare in this new world where women and men both work, but women are disproportionately expected to bear the burden of caring for children at home. And we have policy that does not keep up with any of that. And so the way I describe it in the book is it's like a thicket of, of barriers grow back up to the opportunities for women and, and for non-white men. And that, that has uh, reduced the productivity gains that we saw in that uh, post-war boom. Jim, if we were talking though in 1970, I could make the argument, I'm not sure I would, and who knows what I would say back in 1970, but I could make the argument that this miraculous creation of the greatest middle class in history, as you've put it, was the creation of white men, from FDR to LBJ to the Kennedys. Why do you stress the role of white men in turning back the tide when they were the ones who created it in the first place, at least from a political point of view? It's hard for anybody else to create something from a political point of view when white men run the country all the time. Um, there's li literally nothing positive that could have happened in the United States uh, by people in power uh, up until, you know, very, very recently uh, uh, could have come under anything but a white male president. And so um, I, I agree. And I, I, I absolutely think that we should give credit to the white men who advanced the causes of the middle class and of civil rights. But I also think we need to be really, really uh, cognizant of the fact that they did that under in intense pressure from civil rights leaders. Um, from I mean, women have been protesting for their rights in this country. Uh, and, and black Americans have been protesting for their rights in this country for a lot longer. And it, it took sort of the slow evolution of, of social change uh, to then finally reach a point where you could burst onto, you know, in, into big changes in the civil rights era. But um, I guess my pushback to 1970s you and your argument is, uh, okay, great. We, we should celebrate those white men for what they did, but we should also spend a lot of time asking why other white men didn't do anything earlier. And then we should absolutely look at sort of the ways in which, you know, the elites uh, of this country, the, the people who benefit most from the economy, who are really a specific set of white men, it's, 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 it's sort of white men in elite positions with college degrees, guys like me, basically. I mean, I'm sort of one of the villains in the book. Um, we're, we, we need to really look hard at the ways that they have tried to protect their incumbency at the top of the economy over the last several decades. You're the economics or, or, or an economics correspondent at the New York Times. You know, you know a lot more about economic 
theory and practice than I do. Um, to what extent is your interpretation of American history driven by um, a racial interpretation of economics rather than, say, a Marxist one, which sees things in terms of social class. Marx himself, writing in the middle of the 19th century, never talked about a white male bourgeoisie, simply talked about the bourgeoisie. And the, the Marxist tradition has focused mostly on class rather than race or gender. Yeah, I, uh, I have heard that a lot. It's just one of the um, first critiques that people often raise. Uh, when I lay out my argument that's in the book, when I, when I speak to groups about it. And uh, my response is that we just, um, I think we just went through an election in 2016 that really highlighted for us how interwoven race and class and uh, economics are in America right now. It is very difficult to separate the experience of, of class and the economy from the experience of race when you, when you realize that um, people of different races in the same class in the economy have experienced economic events very differently, both in terms of how much money they make or how much wealth they've accumulated, or even how much optimism they have. In the book, I, I write about the way uh, after the Great Recession in, in 2008, there was a huge divergence in optimism between the, the black and Latino working classes and the white working class. And it was the difference between white workers who had accumulated what they felt like was a stable you know, secure life that had been taken away from them. And then black and Latino workers who felt like they had never quite achieved that goal, but they'd been knocked back in their search for it. And they remained much more optimistic moving forward. They still believed in the American dream, whereas the whites who had had it taken away had really soured on it. Jim, to, to what extent do you see the highly racialized and I would argue racist politics, self-evident racist politics of Donald Trump, as being the the dying song, and I, and 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 it's a very ugly song, a very um, a, 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 a particularly ugly song um, of white male American racism, in the well, context of our current economic crisis and this struggle, at least in your narrative, between white men and the real value in the country, which is essentially everybody else. Well, I mean, I think white men certainly also bring lots of value to the country. I don't, I don't want to say otherwise. I just, um, I think that this great uh, surge in value has come, uh, you know, and, and the storehouse of talent has come from the people who, who were not empowered with the economy for so long. But it's a great question about, about the sort of the evolution of racial attitudes. Um, there has been a real, uh, in, in some ways, uh, sliding backward on, on racial progress uh, under th this president. And you have a, a growing number of white Americans in the first three years, particularly supporters of the president who said that they thought r racism against whites was worse than racism against uh, blacks or Latinos. Um, but I think that the protests and the way that the, of this summer and the way that the polling shows Americans' attitudes have changed uh, is a, a real rejoinder to that. We now see real major change in the degree to which white Americans recognize that the economy and the country uh, still discriminate heavily against black Americans. And I think that that recognition is important and, and could be very fundamentally changing to our politics. Jim, to be fair to, to, to you, this, this book is, is a wonderfully optimistic text in some ways. Um, firstly, because it reflects the, the, the human narrative at the core of this first, first chapter of the American middle class. But it also offers a lot of promise for rebuilding that middle class more broadly and more fairly. What do we need to do? Because um, that 
is the challenge. I think most people would, practically everyone would acknowledge that America in the moment is in crisis because of the crisis of its middle class. How do we rebuild it in, well, in the America of, of 2020? The America of 2020, I mean, certainly when I started writing this book, I wasn't thinking about rebuilding it from a pandemic recession, but, um, but that's where we are. And, and in some ways it's, it makes it much harder. And in some ways it's an opportunity um, because the workers we need are the ones who are on the front lines right now, who are, who are the essential workers who are more exposed to the virus and more exposed to layoffs. So I, I think we need to find ways. Um, what I suggest in the book are some, some policies that, that can help um, Americans build wealth and, and capital and also sort of best deploy their talents. So I'll give you a concrete example. We have a childcare crisis in this country right now. We have millions of women who are unable to either work as much as they want or work at all because schools are not open and they are the caregivers for their children. We need to find a way to solve that with policy. It will dramatically improve the economy and the middle class if we do. But I think that the, the big thing and the big I mean, I'm both hopeful about this and very aware of how daunting it sounds, is that we need massive attitudinal shift. We all need to understand that um, our fates are entwined with each other, that, that white people will do better if, if, if black Americans are, are getting ahead and vice versa. And um, there needs to, we, we have spent a lot of time in this country trying to turn different groups of workers against each other. Um, but if we actually... Uh, showed them how their fates are, are wrapped up with each other, I, I think we could have real positive progress just from everyone looking and forcing the political system to be responsive uh, to opportunity concerns like that. Is that really true, though? Are our fates so profoundly intertwined now? Uh, you're on the East Coast. You're in uh, Virginia. I'm in California. The stock market's doing well. The coastal elites seem to be overall doing reasonably well out of the crisis and it's the rest of america that's suffering the markets are up does it really matter anymore these nas national boundaries you write about an america of the the 1940s and 50s and 60s when nation states were still relevant within the kind of the the the, the economic architecture of the world but with globalization aren't um communities of Berlin or, or, or Budapest more connected with New York or Washington DC or San Francisco than the hinterland of America, which is essentially being cut off in economic and cultural terms? Well, I, I would argue that the, the middle of America is, is equally uh, now plugged in with the rest of the world. You can't, if you go to a dollar store or a Walmart in rural America right now, you are buying goods that are made almost exclusively abroad. Uh, I don't think that's changing anytime soon. People depend upon the consumer products they're, they're getting um, in those stores from those supply chains, and those supply chains are absolutely now globally integrated, and I don't think we're going to unwind them uh, in the years to come. I totally agree with you that we are moving more and more toward a world where fates are intertwined across national borders, and it's a great idea for a sequel to the book. Um, but I do think in terms of Americans with each other, it is true. There is this total detached feeling when you are sitting uh, in New York City or in Washington, D.C. or in Los Angeles or San Francisco or Silicon Valley uh, from the way that people are, are seeing and experiencing the world elsewhere. But uh, I also think the people in Youngstown, Ohio, or the, you know, the people in, in Decaturville, Tennessee, where I, I, I've done stories, they, are, they benefit from a national economy. The economy continues to deliver growth or an income growth on sort of very national 
uh, you know, levels. And I think that it's important that um, we all recognize that you're not just going to have a localized recovery with very rare exception. Um, we need the whole country to get back uh, moving again. We need to solve these big policy problems. It's not going to work if it's just like the, the big mega cities figure it out and everybody else is left behind. We're going to strand a lot of talent that way too. What happens if we don't fix this, Jim? Is, is America teetering on some sort of bigger catastrophe, a civil war perhaps, a breakdown of any kind of civic understanding? What's your warning to our audience if we don't take your message in the riches of this land and so many other arguments which are quite similar uh, and, actual, and, and actualize them? If, for example, we get another four years of Trump, well, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know that any one politician is going to fix this or, or, or sink it. I, I, and I certainly, um, I, tr I tried to write a hopeful book and, and, and not focus on, on a dire warning. But I will, I will mention a warning that may not sound dire, but I think is uh, quite so, which is even if all we had was just four more decades, like the decades we've just had economically, where we're people in the middle struggle to get ahead while everyone at the top zooms away. That does not feel socially sustainable to me. There's, there's a lot of really good empirical evidence on, on the, how the strength of a middle class is correlated with uh, political, positive political outcomes, positive economic outcomes. We need a strong middle class Four more decades of disappointing results, fraying of it and people falling out of it. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe it could lead to even more strife than we all feel around us right now. And I, I think we feel an enormous, as you said at the top, level of, of crisis almost every day in our country right now. So that anxiety would actually result in real crisis, violence, political dictatorship, or, or, or something else even more unimaginable. Yeah, no, I, I, I certainly think that there is a possibility that we could see um, a more violent you know, uh, set of outcomes or, or, you know, much more widespread poverty, more, more stratification of outcomes. And, and I don't think that's the world we want to live in. So the stakes are really high. That's why you should read The Riches of This Land. Just uh, very nice of Jim's publisher to send me the book. It's a, it's a very personal read, very poetic. Uh, even though he's the economics uh, writer on the New York Times, it's, it's not full of charts. It's full of narratives of real human beings and their struggle and triumph and tragedies. Uh, so well worth uh, reading. Jim, in addition to the riches of the land, you're stuck in Virginia during the crisis. What else should people be reading? Well, I have a, I have a whole stack of, uh, of books that um, I've been slowly working my way through during the pandemic. Um, I'm uh, a big fan. I have a colleague, uh, Jay Lin Yang, who wrote a, a piece on uh, immigration, uh, a book on immigration earlier this year, uh, One Mighty and Irresistible Tide, which I would totally recommend. Obviously, uh, Isabel Wilkerson's uh, cast is, uh, is the next thing that I'm reading. I've just, just gotten started on it. And, um, uh, and by the way, just to interrupt, Isabel, if you're watching... I'm doing everything to get you on the show. No excuses. You can't hide from me. <laughs> and then the book I'm, um, that, I, that drops on the same day uh, that mine does, that I'm most looking forward to reading, is uh, Jill Philippobic's uh, OK Boomer, Let's Talk, uh, which is all about the sort of millennial left behindness in the economy. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure 
to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.